This episode was recorded during the 2023 SAG-AFTRA strike. Without the labor of writers and actors, this film wouldn't exist. We stand in solidarity with those striking. Attack of the Final Girls is a podcast about the horror genre, so listener discretion is advised. Please check the show notes for specific content warnings for this episode. And of course, beware of spoilers. Welcome to Attack of the Final Girls. I'm Juliet. And I'm Teresa. And we are here today to uh, talk about a, a slasher of epic proportions. <laughs> this is a sequel. You can watch the original, but you're not going to be too terribly lost if you don't watch the original, because although this is a direct sequel, Slumber Party Massacre 2 kind of stands on its own as its own movie for many reasons. Yeah, I would say that everything you need to know about the first movie is told to you in the second one. Yeah. And not in a way that's like going over the same ground. Yeah, this is not Silent Night, Deadly Night 2, where you're literally (laughs) going to see the first movie in the second movie. This is just more... The first movie is its own thing. The first movie is very good and it's kind of its own thing. But the information you need about the, we'll say, one and a half characters that cross over is all told within the first few moments of the movie. And then we're off to the races on our own special adventure. It's Slumber Party Massacre 2. Woo! Yes. It's a slice of 80s cheese. It was made in 1987 and it feels so 1987. Oh, yeah. For so many reasons, too. I was recently reading a list or maybe, oh, I wasn't reading it. (laughs) It was a YouTube video about movies that were influenced by Nightmare on Elm Street, Mm -hmm. like movies in the 80s that sort of came out of the sort of ethos of Nightmare on Elm Street. And I didn't fully agree with the list. There were quite a few on there that I was like, no, not at all. Like trick or treat. No. But this one, yeah, this one, I was like, all right, I can see that. Mm-hmm. There are definitely some nods to Nightmare on Elm Street yeah, uh, and the sort of dream verse antics of Freddy Krueger. I mean, there is an Officer Krueger in this, which I think <laughs> is the nicest little hat tip. Yeah. But it's also its own thing. You know, a Freddy Krueger clone, our killer is not. Right. Yeah. I mean, I could see the parallels there, like dream shenanigans happening and, and things crossing over from the dream universe into real life and uh, what's real and what's not like, although Courtney never tries to stay awake. Right. She really is trying to sleep. She just can't. There are nods to a lot of other horror movies via name. Yeah. Uh, Courtney's last name is Bates. Yep. Officer Kruger. There are some other like names that have to do with other horror movies, but you don't really hear them much in the movie. So Oh, well. (laughs) It came out in 1987. If you haven't seen it, it has to do with Courtney Bates, who's the younger sister of Valerie. Valerie is one of the heroines, the final girls in Slumber Party Massacre, the OG, the original. Valerie's little sister, Courtney, who now is is in high school and is much older. I think there's like six or seven years or five or six years. Yeah. I mean, there's... Five years in real world time. But I think that's actually about right for the movies, too, because in the original, Courtney is in like middle school slash junior high and now she's a senior in high school. So five would be about right. Yeah. 
I think they mentioned that she's 12 when the events happen. So if she's a senior, yeah, probably like five years. She and her friends who are in a band go to one of her friend's dad's condos in Desert Springs for the weekend. It's her birthday. She wants to go. But she's struggling with these dreams where she sees her sister in sort of various states of distress. And there's also this kind of menacing male figure who is attacking people and killing the people that she loves and and causing her distress. So when she gets to this condo in Desert Springs, thing, you know, chaos ensues, of course. Of course. And our actors that we have in the movie, Crystal Bernard plays Courtney. Jennifer Rhodes plays Mrs. Bates, her mom. Kimberly MacArthur plays Amy, which, tiny segue, she is actually a former Playboy playmate, and she did not want to do a nude film, so she does not get naked in this movie. Oh. Um but she also is featured in a movie that I covered on my other, uh, my action movie podcast, Hard Ticket to Sedaris. She is in Malibu Express, which is one of the movies that we've covered on that. And then Patrick Lowe plays Matt. That's Courtney's love interest, who is also coming to stay for the weekend. Juliet Cummins, who plays Sheila. Heidi Haddad, who plays Sally. And Cindy Eilbacher, who plays Valerie. And then can't forget Joel Hoffman as TJ, uh, the yeah. goofy love interest of Sheila, and the driller killer played by Atonis Illich, quite possibly the best part of the movie. Legend. <laughs> Absolute horror legend. <laughs> That's kind of what you're getting into with Slumber Party Massacre, too. Super fun. It's exactly what the, you know, the name kind of indicates. It's a Slumber Party Massacre, too. Um <laughs> It's everything that you would want in a movie like that. And funny enough, you know, I, I've seen this movie a bunch of times, but I'm, get, I'm getting into it. And I'm like, this is a pretty straightforward movie. You know, and I'm not sure if there's much analysis that we're going to do about this. And then Juliet's like, guess what? This is actually a queer movie. And I was like, <laughs> all right, let's go. Let's do it. <laughs> well, I cannot take credit for that theory. There was actually a piece on a slash film that was part of their Queering the Scene series, which is explores, you know, LGBTQ plus themes and content in all kinds of movies, kind of like in unexpected places. And this piece was by Ariel Fisher. It came out in 2019. And the headline was How Slumber Party Massacre 2 Rewrote the Language of the Slasher Horror Film and Became One of the Great Queer Horror Movies. And the piece was really interesting because it was not necessarily the angle I thought that they were going to take with it. Because I could definitely see on a very surface level how you could say like, yeah, it's a pretty queer movie, you know, just from all of like the overt phallic imagery, you know, very, very like queer, like male queer centric mm-hmm. film. But actually in this piece, the author posits that the whole driller killer thing is Courtney trying to process and deal with her repressed bisexuality. And once I read that, I was really seeing the movie in a completely different light. The author of the article points out a lot of like the way that the movie is shot. Like there are a lot of these like really interesting like close up like straight on shots where you have like the camera right on somebody and you're looking through Courtney's POV, Mm -hmm. which in general is unusual for a slasher of that era. Often if you had a POV shot, it was going to be a killer POV shot Mm -hmm. rather than the heroine or the final girl POV shot. And they were saying how, like, notice how the POV shots are often 
in regards to the other women Mm -hmm. in the scenes and how you sort of get put in Courtney's shoes where you're seeing these women that are a part of her life in a very like straight on intimate like and not in like a sexy intimate but in a kind of like feeling out like oh here's this person in my space it's a pretty interesting take Mm -hmm. and I don't know if I'm like fully, fully on board with that theory, but I can definitely see how the author arrived at that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, Slumber Party Massacre 2 and the first Slumber Party Massacre were both written and directed by women. Mm -hmm. So that's pretty interesting in and of itself to have two movies consecutively in a series, however loose the series might be, to be written and directed by women. Not the same woman, but still, although horror was sort of a burgeoning genre that would have that happen, I would say more frequently than in other genres. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that there are so many scenes that are sort of like parodies of the male gaze. That's why I thought that take was interesting, because I'm going to jump specifically to the, uh, the pillow fight sequence. Yeah. So I would like for all of our viewers to raise their hands if they've ever had a legit topless drunken pillow fight at a slumber party. I have never. No. Bueller. (laughs) Bueller. (laughs) I've never heard of that happening. Clearly, this is this is something that occurs a lot in like slumber party movies. Yeah. Over the years. I mean. From the 80s all the way through now, I mean, there's still parody movies that are made that have that happen, where there's a topless pillow fight, feathers going everywhere. You know, as I'm watching this scene, I'm like, this is clearly like a parody of something that would actually happen. Because all I remember is eating junk food and watching like VHS tapes until like way early in the morning and being wired on chocolate or something. Yeah. Never like weird pillow fights. No, never, ever. So it's like a parody, you know? We're seeing this all happen. And then the the dudes, like, they get there early. They're not supposed to be there until the next day. And they're, like, peeking through the window, like, oh, yeah, this is great. I didn't know that this actually happened. It's like, spoiler alert, it doesn't actually happen. Yeah. But it's funny that there are other parts of this movie where dream world transcends into real life because this is another example of the dream world transcending into real life. And maybe potentially this is, like, Courtney's way of saying, like, this is what I want to see happen you know like i want to explore this happening but nothing actually sexual happens it's just like topless girls you know with feathers yeah there's no like makeout scenes or like Mm -hmm. you know actual fighting or anything it's just more like feathers and like hitting each other with a pillow it's not that big of a deal yeah but yeah it is kind of interesting that that would be one of the things that happen and courtney sort of like outside of it too she doesn't really participate she does like the feathering thing But she doesn't really participate in what's going on. She's more observing Mm -hmm. and not in a lascivious way. And like her observation is definitely put up against like the two guys who are seriously like Beavis and Butthead. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You know, her observation of what her friends are doing is definitely, you know, juxtaposed to these guys who are like peeping in the window and they're like, oh man, you know, girl boobs, woo. (laughs) She's a part of it. You know, she's not on the outside. She's on the inside, but she's also observing, you know, and she's almost like studying. I would almost say like scrutinizing like, oh, hey, is this maybe, and this is where the bisexuality theory fits perfectly, like, is this maybe what women who are attracted to each other do? 
Hmm. Yeah. I don't know. Let me watch further. Let me make some mental notes. Yeah. You can really like see that processing happening. Because, I mean, according to the story, it seems like she does not go on slumber party, like, outings very often. Right. Because she has this trouble sleeping. And we're not exactly sure if this is new. The trouble sleeping is, like, something that happened recently. Or if this is something that she's had happen for a long time or since, you know, the occurrences when she was 12 with Valerie and the, the original Driller Killer. But we just don't know. We have right. no idea as to whether or not this is recent or something that's been happening for five or six years now. But if this has been something that's happening since, you know, she was 12, then she probably hasn't been on many slumber parties. So this is all like new territory for her. Yeah. And you could definitely see where that would be possible given when the whole like party trip thing comes up in the beginning where she's a little hesitant. She's like, eh. And she wants to go. You can tell, like, she wants to go, but she's not sure. And if you're somebody that experiences, like, nightmares or night terrors, I could see how you'd be torn between, like, oh, I want to go. Like, all my friends are going. All my friends, maybe I have a crush on some of them, you Mm -hmm. know. But also, like, what if I, you know, this thing that happens to me happens and it's embarrassing and I freak my friends out, you know, that kind of a thing, which I also think is very, like, natural and relatable uh, no matter what you're dealing with. There's a part where Sheila and TJ are having sex and it's really loud in the next room. And she asks one of her friends, I can't remember, I think Amy, you know, are they always this loud? Belying uh-huh. the fact that she probably hasn't been in this situation before. Yeah. And maybe TJ just hasn't been there in the past. But this is also a situation where these kids, like, although they're, you know, quote unquote, seniors in high school, they're getting into some pretty adult hijinks. Yeah. Like, <laughs> taking pills and you know getting wasted on champagne and you know they're alone at this condo with a giant pool and like man when i was 17 18 there's no friggin way my parents would have been like yeah go ahead and drive out to desert springs hours away you know for your birthday and and party with boys yeah Yeah, no yeah not at all not unsupervised anyways like no It's just funny that they're all kind of like autonomous. Like the parents come in very little. The only parent that really, you know, comes in is Mrs. Bates. Yeah. And it's just by way of like Courtney being like, can you please go? Yeah. If we hadn't had that little opening like permission set up, I would have assumed that they were in college. Oh, yeah. Like I had to kind of double check like, oh, they're in. Because even when they're like talking about school at the beginning with Matt, the hot male love interest for Courtney, They talk about like, oh, she says, I had lunch with him a couple of times, you know, and they're talking about classes. And I'm like, are these college classes or high school classes? And then they mention the dance and it's like, okay, not really dances in college. Yeah. Not that I know of. I didn't have like a university experience, but as far as I know, there's not dances. Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there's like parties, but dances, I don't know. Maybe if you go... I. Yeah, every example I'm thinking of is actually from a work of fiction, so I don't know. <laughs> I'm like, maybe if you go to some fancy magical college, and I'm like, oh, wait, that's that's in books. That's not real life. <laughs> or like a sorority or fraternity party. Yeah, that could be. Yeah. Yeah, that's possible. Yeah. To keep going down the, the bisexuality rabbit hole, there's an argument to be made that the driller killer in this one definitely looks like a butch representation of a lesbian Mm -hmm. like a leather you know a leather butch like yeah leather jacket leather pants leather boots slicked back hair you know a cigarette all the time behind their ear 
all things, not only butch lesbians, you know, would affect, but also like gay men. Yeah. Like, like look at Judas Priest. Thing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, I mean, the both of these things, like, of course, there's also the Fonz, you know, argument wearing the leather jacket, but the Fonz also wore like blue jeans, was very aggressively hetero. Yeah. You know, only went after women. But in this case, like, I think there's an, an argument to be made that it's possible and sort of like the messages that we get throughout the movie where Valerie is trying to warn her sister, like, don't go all the way. And the driller killer being that sort of like, machismo that Courtney doesn't have because she's shy. Yeah. And there are parts where he also says, like, you and I are the same until we go all the way. Mm -hmm. And it's just very fascinating to kind of think about, like, is this a representation of what she thinks lesbians look like or what she wants to emulate? Yeah. Or kind of like that dark side of her where she's like fighting that, you know, in her dreams. Also with violence, because she obviously had this like traumatic experience happen to her Mm -hmm. and happened to her sister when she was very young and her sister survived, but she saw some dude get stabbed and thrown into a pool, you know, so pretty scary. So like this trauma of coming of age and also like, am I really fully straight? Am I attracted to my friends and fighting that in her head? Because she really wants to be like a regular normal girl she wants to play in a rock band she wants to have like a good relationship with her mom she doesn't want to be seeing you know terrible things in her dreams but maybe this is like the confluence of all those things the hormones are hitting she's hitting Mm -hmm. puberty you know she sees that dead dove at the beginning like you know loss of innocence one could make several arguments for that but just really fascinating to kind of like go down that rabbit hole and think about Is that possible? Was that the writer's intent or the director's intent? Or is this something that we're seeing now and being like, hey, that's pretty gay? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think the driller killer as like rock and roller is such an it's such an interesting choice. And I think it's such an interesting choice given that this movie came out in the late 80s and putting it up against the fact that you also have these young women in a band when you look at music of that time, you know, you had hair metal, you know, these glamorous, androgynous, you know, mostly men with very few exceptions up against these amazing bands that often like were rock and roll, but got pushed firmly into pop. I'm thinking like the Bangles and the Go-Go's and people like that because they were women. Mm -hmm. And so sort of putting that lens on it is just really, really interesting, especially with the whole line about we're one in the same. Mm -hmm. Like even if we're not going to go fully down the bisexuality road, just the idea that like, you know, Courtney and her friends in this band, you know, I felt like they looked very intentionally like the Bangles and the Go-Go's. That was totally what they were going for in this movie. And yet they are talking about these big dreams of like getting signed and becoming famous. And I almost wonder if that was a little dig at like, you know, well, you could get famous, but you're girls. Yeah. Maybe what you want to be is actually what this guy is doing, which is in the more mask realm of rock and roll. I don't know. I'm, I'm, (laughs) 
I'm thinking about this a lot. I'm giving a talk about this later today. So nice. It's kind of on my mind, like this whole like, where do women get put in rock and roll, especially in the past, as opposed to being allowed to embrace a sound or a look or a feel or an instrument that is more masculine. Yeah. I do love that we have girls playing guitars and drums in this. Yeah. That's great. That's really funny that you mentioned that because I would say that their music, the music that they actually play in the movie is more like rock and roll than what the Driller Killer actually plays. Yeah. So keep in mind, too, this Driller Killer has legitimately nothing to do with the original. Yeah. Like the Driller Killer in the first movie doesn't look like this guy. He doesn't use the same weapon. He does not sing. I don't even know if he talks in the first movie. I don't even I remember. remember. Yeah. I. If he does, it's like barely. Yeah. I don't even know if he has any like dialogue, honestly, but... They're like two totally separate iterations of like the only similarity is that they're both using a drill. Yeah. And not even the same drill. Right. It's just a drill bit between the two of them. But the driller killer in this movie and also the first one, he doesn't sing. Like he doesn't talk. He doesn't sing. Like there's no rock and roll, you know, situation (laughs) with the original killer. So to bring that in in this movie and for Courtney's dream to be, you know, and transition into real life while singing and like it's just so totally random and his music is very like boppy like mm-hmm. 60s almost grease style music yeah and he's not even singing about what's going on oh yeah you know like you would see in later movies where there's a song that's like actually about the occurrences that are happening or the fact that he's going to kill them all he doesn't even sing about that yeah he plays like this like very you know straight poppy rock music mm-hmm. and the girls are playing like stuff that's a little bit heavier and more relevant to the time yeah you know more present and he also is kind of dressed not like you would not like a rock star necessarily would yeah outside of david lee roth videos <laughs> well, let's talk about david lee roth for a minute yeah. because like let's do uh, it. the driller killer is given major david lee roth vibes you know during one of his musical sequences i couldn't help but think of the video for just a gigolo and in fact some of his musical sequences are filmed just like the music videos of the time which i really really appreciate that sort of melding of like we're gonna step out of a horror film for a second and into like this weird music video. I really, really love it, the level of performance. And what's interesting about like that level of performance from this killer is on the one hand, you could say, this makes no sense. These are two separate things. This isn't scary. This guy's breaking out in song. We're pausing in the middle of a chase scene for him to sing whatever but i would actually argue that it's scarier i said this when we were watching the movie like with michael myers you know like michael myers primary motivation is to kill he's going to kill he's stalking you you know the end game here is michael myers wants to kill you this dude you don't know what his deal is (laughs) and that's almost scarier like the fact that he's like I'm chasing you. I'm going to kill you. Now I'm going to stop and make you listen to my song that I've fully choreographed. And then I'm going to get back to killing you. Like somehow that's even more sinister to me. Yeah. And, you know, other situations where we would see something like this, he would kill the person because they don't like his music or they don't like his performance. No, this guy's like, I know that I have you pegged. I know definitively 
that you are mine. Like, yeah. I'm going to kill you. So I'm going to run up and down these stairs, slide down the banister a couple of times, chase you upstairs, and do this whole song and dance that has nothing to do with what's happening in front of me. And I'll kill you at the end of it. Yeah. At the crescendo of yeah. the song. Yeah. And he does. Oh, yeah. He does that with Sheila. He chases her up the stairs and she like desperately tries to get into a room that her friends locked her out of because I thought that it was the driller killer. Yeah. But she's like desperately trying to get into this room and he like very slowly creeps towards her with David Lee Roth lighting and smoke. Yeah. Down this hallway and kills her, stabs her with the drill. Yeah. It's very intense. It's very music video-esque. Oh, yeah. It really feels like that. Yeah. Except for the murder part. Yeah. Yeah. Generally, that's not. Well, it was the 80s. So, you that's know. That's true. Alice Cooper. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's definitely, you know, David Lee Roth, there's definitely some Alice Cooper in there, too. Yeah. Because I think that's the thing people forget about Alice Cooper is at his heart, he is a vaudevillian. Oh, yeah. Know? Yeah. Yeah. I've always wanted to see him play. Yeah. He I've never just, got to see him he live. He's just here. I saw. I saw he yeah. was in Fairborn at Foy's our Halloween. Yeah. It's basically taken over all of Main Street in Fairborn. <laughs> They own the entire town. Pretty much. (laughs) There's a couple of really goofy things that happen in this movie, like the chicken in the fridge attacking. I would really like to know because, I mean, there's a theme in this movie of birds for some reason, like birds being dead. Yeah. There's a dead dove that Courtney comes across before Amy picks her up at the beginning of the movie. Uh And Amy's like, what were you doing? And she's like, looking at a dead bird. (laughs) I was like, how very Daria of you. Yes. (laughs) And Amy's like, wow, you're so weird sometimes. And Courtney just kind of smiles at that. And I was like, yeah, I mean, I've been there. Yeah, We've all been there. (laughs) And then she gets attacked later in the movie after their drunken night of partying. She gets attacked by a chicken in the fridge. Yeah. And it, like, gushes stuff, and she, like, throws it on the ground and runs to get her friends. And it's like, what? what is with the birds imagery in this movie? Well, there's more than that, too. The feathers. Oh, yeah, the feathers, yeah. And after the weird hamburger thing, she's like, here, have a chicken sandwich. Oh, that's weird. Yeah. Some kind of bird thing happening here. Yeah, there's definitely... Maybe it's like innocence, you know, yeah. like the dove is supposed to be innocent. I don't know about chickens being innocent. They're they're actually kind of assholes. But um, <laughs> yeah, that, I mean, there is kind of a theme there with birds. Yeah. Maybe that's unintentional. But I did also wonder about their food situation. They just had like so much ready-made food. I was like, I want a chicken sandwich. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> Especially but, with that condo like not being set up or anything. Yeah, like there's nothing unpacked, but there's a whole ass chicken in the fridge. What? Maybe that's what was in that road case that was precariously balanced on that station wagon. <laughs> it wasn't the drums. It it's was food. food. <laughs> well, uh, you did see them bring in some groceries, but like... They have a chef? Right? Okay. So here's my thing with the chicken. And I know that I'm spending way too much time on this stupid whole chicken. If I was going to a slumber party with my friends at a unsupervised adult condo, I for sure would not be buying a whole ass chicken. Because who's going to prepare that? A raw chicken. Yeah. Like maybe a rotisserie chicken. That's already cooked. Yeah. And then you could just pick at it. Yeah. Or make like a sandwich or whatever. Yeah. But a raw whole chicken. Yeah. Nobody's preparing that. No. That's going to get thrown in the trash because all these kids are like, let's microwave corn dogs. Right. <laughs> That's what I would have done. I'd oh, like, yeah. Put, you have a toaster oven? Let's put some, you know, pizza rolls in there. I'm not going to eat Pizza rolls was my exact. <laughs> that was my go-to. <laughs> yeah. We ate pizza rolls all the time. Like it was pizza rolls and taquitos. That was like the thing yeah. that we ate during 
summer bagel parties. bites. Bagel bites, yeah. yeah. But definitely not 100% not a whole chicken. <laughs> I mean, I don't even think my mom ever made a whole chicken. I mean, my mom did, but like it was a whole production. Yeah, not for a sleepover. Probably. No. She'd be like, no, your stupid friends, they, they don't deserve a whole chicken. Yeah, they, no. They would never appreciate my whole Cornish hen. Yeah, <laughs> you know? absolutely not. <laughs> not really Cornish hen. I don't think I've ever had a Cornish hen before. I don't think I have. That seems very fancy. It does seem very fancy. It'd be like eating quail where you're like, this is exorbitantly fancy. I'm going to stick with the salmon. Yeah. I don't know about quail. Yeah. I, just in general, I just would not expect an entire like house full of the high school kids to get a chicken. No, no, definitely not. That chicken scene actually weirdly took me back to my slumber party days because in middle school... I remember going to a slumber party at my friend Gina's house and we watched, I think, and I always mess this up what it's from. I'm pretty sure it was from Tales from the Dark Side, which we definitely watched on VHS, given that this would have been in the 90s. (laughs) There's a Christmas episode and they have a couple of famous ones from that show. But in this Christmas episode, there is a moment where like stuff is flying around the house and like there's some kind of ghost or evil spirit or something and a turkey or a chicken is like propelled up on top of the christmas tree and is literally like dancing around and to this day i think that is the funniest freaking thing ever and it's just like one of those things that has always stuck out in my memory like i went years not even remembering what that was from i was just like the thing with the chicken it was so funny (laughs) um and i just think it's great that that kind of happens in this movie and my first experience with it was at a slumber party yeah of all the things to jump out of a fridge or like yeah. to happen to her for the chicken to do it, it's yeah. just, it's wild. Yeah. And, I mean, it's goofy. Like to her, it's very scary. But to us, we're like, it's a chicken. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, why would that be the thing yeah. that happens? But, <laughs> you know, and the chicken is fake. Like you can clearly see because it's like pumping oh, yeah. gross goo out of it. <laughs> totally. But I will say that the makeup effects and the special effects in this movie are wildly amazing yeah considering that this is you know not part of a major franchise the budget's probably not very big we only have a couple of different set pieces in this you know for all of those reasons the fact that the gore and the kills are so good is like mind-blowing it really is and you know i think there's something to be said about the look of this franchise in general this is one of these horror franchises that has influenced a lot a lot of indie filmmakers Mm mm-hmm A lot of folks to this day kind of emulate some of the lighting effects and things like that. And I think this one in particular, because it's taking place in a mostly empty house, is a real kind of testament to what you can do with lighting. Mm -hmm. Because you have this space that looks pretty plain and pretty boring. You know, it's like mostly empty condo, beige walls, beige carpet, beige furniture. And it looks okay by day. But then by night, when the the scary stuff starts happening, the lighting really, really makes it into this like kind of scary, dreamscapey, claustrophobic place. And I think a lot of indie filmmakers, especially as they're starting out with lower budgets, have really looked to the lighting in this film to see like, how can I make something look good and compelling if I don't have an elaborate set, if it, maybe I only have access to a house that a friend is getting ready to move into or out of or something like that. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I mean, 
when the driller killer finally makes his transition from the dream world into the real world and kills Matt, we go downstairs and there's this immediate dramatization because all of the other people aside from Courtney and Matt are downstairs like messing around with the band equipment. And when the driller killer comes downstairs after Courtney, one of the guys grabs the lamp and Mm -hmm. knocks it over. And immediately after that, you have like this dramatization of all of the lighting because their main source of light is now on the floor. And they like kind of hit him in the face with the lamp. They hit the driller killer in the face with the lamp. But after that, everything is dark. Yeah. And the only thing that you have is the ambient lighting from the outside front window. And when TJ and Sheila run away, they get trapped or they like run to this house that has the lights on. But the only lights in the front are actually the porch light, mm-hmm. which is surrounded on both sides. It's kind of like a an inset thing where you have to walk a couple steps to get to the front door and there's no light outside of that. Yeah. So it's like very uh, narrowing. It, it's claustrophobic. It makes you feel like, oh, where do we go now? There's nowhere else for us to go to get away from this. And the driller killer is is omniscient. He can appear right. anywhere. Yeah. You know, he, there are some chasing scenes, but he really doesn't care about the chase to get to them because he knows that he will. Right. He, he can appear. To, yeah. He doesn't need to follow the rules of time or space. Right. It's more like the thrill of the chase for him. Oh, yeah. You know, definitely. He's not concerned about them getting away. He's not grabbing at them. He's like just measured pace kind of going after them because i mean that happens with courtney you know there's a part where she's able to get away from him and then he immediately appears outside the room and he just doesn't care he's just like there for the carnage he's there to stick people with his his drill (laughs) his working guitar drill apparatus yes it's so cool it's so cool it's so phallic which again (laughs) i think points to like the whole like cock rock 80s thing you know but it's such a such a cool horror weapon i mean even to have a drill was pretty unique you know going away from the traditional like butcher knife axe kind of situation really nice choice of a slasher weapon and then to take it a step further to meld it with this guitar it's just like oh man it's so weird but it's so brilliant all at once Especially because that has nothing to do with the original, with the exception of the drill bit itself. There's no guitars in the original, like not in that the killer's using. It has nothing to do with that. So to bring it to be like, you know what, we're going to have a killer, but not only is he also going to have a drill, because that could have been it, you know, like a dream dude who has the drill and is coming into real life would have worked fine and would have made sense based off of the events of the first one. But they were like, no. We're going to make him a rock star, dress him entirely in leather, and he's going to have a guitar drill that he kills people with. Mm -hmm. What? Yeah. (laughs) What? And not only that, this guy also talks in lyric puns. (laughs) The whole time. Yeah. (laughs) Which is like so corny, but also very awesome. I feel like, and I don't know if this was in the writing or in the direction or in the performance Huge nods to Frankenfurter. Mm-hmm. The way that he's like simultaneously talking to the characters and talking to the audience while vamping it up yeah. is Frankenfurter 1000%. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know who that's coming from in this movie, but I really, really appreciate it because it feels really comfortable to me as a Rocky horror fan and a horror fan in general. I'm like, oh, I see what you're doing. <laughs> I'm, I'm down for this. Yeah. And the music is similar too, like that yeah. like corny sort of like 
awesome but kind of show-esque yeah i guess like there's a musicality to the the music to the songs that are being played definitely that he's playing that are like not contemporary to the late 80s yeah except for in like a musical yeah yeah musical theater so very cool and very much like rocky horror picture show like those songs were not necessarily contemporary to the late 70s there was some rock more rock influence i would say but it's more like musical theater oh yeah yeah when you look at like eddie too like eddie is a total throwback you know for the 70s even yeah both of them have that very like almost vegas-esque like big show elvis presley tom jones like we're gonna add a layer of like sequins onto everything yeah this is definitely like evil elvis yeah Oh, like, yeah. If he had like a scarf, like a, um, oh my God, yeah, like a tied around scarf, I'd be like, yeah, that's evil Elvis. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's why they didn't go that route because that would have been too evil. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> and they, they're like, uh, no, Elvis is, he's evil in his own way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I did also, I made a specific mention of this in my notes. The part where Sally has a zit is like oh, so God. ferociously disgusting. Yeah. I just wanted to make sure that I made mention of it, like, because there's a part where Sally's like, man, I'm getting a zit. And it's like, yeah, well, you had corn dogs and champagne for dinner last night. Like, yeah, it made me get a zit just watching the movie. And I also got heartburn and I had to take Pepto. But, you know, like, she's like, oh, I'm getting a zit. And then later she's in the bathroom and she's like, oh, can't you see it? And there's like this progression of her getting this like disgusting zit on her face. And then there's a part where the zit bursts and is just like spewing liquid oh, on Courtney. So gross. It like it looks like she's actually gagging. Like, yeah, oh, this is disgusting. And the makeup, but it's only in the movie for maybe a couple of seconds, and it's such a shame because it is so cool. Yeah, the whole the effect is well done. The makeup is well done. It's great. I forget, you know, that this was also the era before, and I. If this is your thing, whatever, I I cannot abide by it. The whole, like, pimple popping video trend, like, I just, I cannot. But this was, like, way before that. So I feel like the effect on the audience was probably similar to the effect on me where I was just like, ooh, I just threw up in my mouth a little bit. Cool. (laughs) Cool. (laughs) I am a victim to the pimple popping videos. Oh, I can't. I will say I can't abide by anything, like, mostly for me it's like blackheads and ingrown hairs because there's no blood with those yeah you know i can do that and it is kind of soothing i can't do any of them like if they pop up on my tiktok stream i'm like scroll 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 (laughs) scroll oh god i need a cat video now like oh no i get them on instagram a lot oh i get suggested that stuff on instagram oh i hope i've got my phone sitting here i hope i don't start getting them now Instagram algorithm is always listening. It's always listening. Just don't, just if you see it, just don't watch it. And then they won't pop up on your algorithm, yeah, hopefully. I will scroll away as quickly as possible. Maybe Yeet. burn my phone. I don't know. Yeet. <laughs> just throw your phone out yeah. the window. That's the only solution. You got to start over. <laughs> All right. Next episode. It's our anniversary. Woo! The year two is completed. Yeah. We're entering into our third year. Yeah. And as such... 
because it's our podcast and we make the rules. That's right. <laughs> We're allowed to do whatever we want. Yeah. We're doing one of our favorite vampire movies, even though we've recently done a vampire movie because it's our podcast and we get to do what we I want. I feel like all the vampire movies are our favorite vampire movies too, which is okay because it's our podcast and we do what we want. <laughs> all the vampire movies are our favorites. Yeah. <laughs> but we're doing Francis Ford Coppola's 1992 Bram Stoker's yes. Dracula with rigid Keanu and Winona Ryder <laughs> and my favorite Gary Oldman character of all time. And I will be dressing like him. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, w- I wish I had that outfit. Oh, man. Yeah. I wish I had his London outfit with his purple, his like tiny purple yeah. glasses. Yeah. So we're going to talk about how much we love all of the costumes Visual delight. That's all that we're going to have time for. (laughs) Yeah. We're just going to do a costume by costume analysis of why it's great and why somebody should buy it for us. And that will be the whole episode. Yes. I would like to wear his like strange muscle armor. Oh, yeah. It's very cool. Yeah. I did see a purse. There's actually a purse that... I saw that. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of want it. But I'm also like, what's the practical use of this? Probably negative but this is like round yeah i can't i can't understand how i would carry a round like three-dimensional round purse it's still cool though <laughs> yeah it's true <laughs> thanks for listening to attack of the final girls find us online at attack and hear bonus episodes at patreon.com slash attack of the final girls we are Attack of the Final Girls on Instagram and TikTok. Our theme music is by House Ghost and is available on Rad Girlfriend Records. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcasting app so you don't miss an episode and rate and review on Apple Podcasts so more people can find the show. I'm Juliet. And I'm Teresa. Until next time, stay scary. Stay scary.